Okay, welcome everyone. So today we're doing First and Second Kings, and then we're doing First and Second Chronicles. Right? It's four books, so it's a lot of material that we're going to cover, and it's actually a lot of material that we have covered. Right? I don't know about you guys, but uh, personally, I find the historical books probably the most difficult in Scripture. There's a lot of things you kind of have to keep in mind. There's a lot going on, and it's been information overload. Right? We've been doing three, four books at a time. So uh, I just drew this diagram, uh, uh, what's it called, timeline, right, to give you context as to what's happening. And then I just want to quickly summarize what we've, what we've been through um, with the historical books. So we started with Joshua, right? So we got to the historical books after the, the Pentateuch, the first five books, and we had the nation of Israel and they were in the wilderness, Right. Uh, the nation of Israel followed Moses for 40 years in the wilderness and God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And then he disciplined them in the wilderness and then he brought them into the promised land, right? The land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they didn't yet enter it. And then Moses dies and Joshua is commissioned to lead the people into the promised land of Canaan. And that's what we looked at in the book of Joshua, right? The book of Joshua marks God fulfilling his promises to Abraham that the land of Canaan would belong to his descendants. And more than 500 years later, the children of Israel, they finally settled in the land and they made it theirs, right? And that's roughly what you see going on in Kings and Chronicles. And then in Joshua also, it marked the end of an age for Israel because after Moses and Joshua die, there's no commissioned leader, right? There's no appointed leader directly from God, except for God himself. And then after that, Israel moves on to the age of Judges. So we got to the book of Judges, and Judges is the account of how Israel behaves between the time of Joshua's death and the leadership of a king. So before Saul and after Joshua, what happens? We have the, we have the Judges for roughly 400 years, right? <clears throat> but... Instead of remaining loyal to God and following his laws, multiple generations of Israelites, they wander in their faith, they worship idols, they indulge in violence, and everything descends into chaos. So that period in Judges is a dark era in Israel's history. Right? The book shows how, how persistent Israel is in forgetting the Lord, and yet how faithful God is to discipline and deliver his people. So God would periodically raise leaders called Judges, and they would help deliver Israel from her enemies. <clears throat> So it's in Judges that we see Israel's need for a Messiah, right? Because there's no good king in Israel. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. That's what the text says over there. So both Judges and the book of Ruth tell us how bad things were in Israel before God gave them a king. And then they anticipate the coming of a good king, right? Which is David, especially in the book of Ruth, which is what we also looked at after that. So the story of Ruth takes place during the time of Judges, right? So during that 400-year spell. And it was a story of hope during a very dark period in Israel's political and spiritual history. Uh, the, book of Ruth, the, the, sorry, the book of Ruth shows us the, a picture of Christ in Boaz, right? He's known as a kinsman redeemer. And Jesus is the great redeemer. And the book of Ruth foreshadows that. And Ruth and Boaz end up having a son. And the book closes with a surprise, which is Ruth is the great, great, great grandmother of King David, whom we meet later in the book of Samuel, right? And that's the book we last, we, we last looked at two weeks ago. We didn't meet last week, right? Yeah, it feels like. <laughs> so that's what we looked at in Samuel, right? 
So what did we see in 1st and 2nd Samuel? So 1st Samuel marks a turning point in Israel's history. Israel moves from a theocracy, right, which kind of means like God is ruling the nation, to a monarchy. Now there's a king, right? Instead of crying out to God for help, Israel demands that Samuel appoints a king. At first, they're given the ungodly Saul, right? But God raises up another deliverer to lead his people in David. So it's in 1st Samuel that we see an example of a messiah. Even though Saul and David both were anointed by God to lead and deliver Israel, only one of them um, pointed to Christ, right? And Jesus is a descendant of David, right? And Christ is the true Messiah anointed by God to rule over and to save the lost. So the books of First and Second Samuel, they're really one story, which is God finds a man after his own heart to lead his people and um, the two books were originally not divided, right? It was just Samuel. In the same way, Kings and Chronicles was just Kings and just Chronicles, but it was later divided. And so Second Samuel begins with David hearing the news of Saul's death. And then we moved on to Second Samuel, which shows a transition back to a God-honoring leadership in David, right? It was all bad with Saul, and now it's mostly good with David. Um, and David was anointed king of Israel by God, and he's a picture of a true Messiah. And in the New Testament, Jesus is revealed to be the fulfillment of a godly king, right? David tried to and failed to, up, he tried, but he failed to uphold the law of Moses. But Christ not only upholds it, he fulfills the law, right? Jesus is revealed to be the fulfillment of a godly king. He came to fulfill the law where David was tempted and failed, Jesus overcame and God promises that David's uh, descendants, his bloodline, will have an everlasting kingdom. And Christ is the one who fulfills that, right? He will rule over Israel forever. Okay, that's the broad overview. I hope you guys are with me. Okay, great. So let's move on to... What comes first, Kings or Chronicles? Kings. Let's move on to Kings, right? So first session, we look at Kings, and then we look at Chronicles the next session. So this timeline just shows you, so before this was the 400 years, and then you had Saul's reign, then you had David's reign, and uh, we'll see now uh, Solomon's reign, and the kingdom of Israel will be split. It will be split into two, and we'll see that as we go. So if you've ever read through Kings and Chronicles, you'll find that these two books have a lot of repetition, right? It's almost like Okay, I read this before. You know, it's the same book. Uh, it's like in varsity, you know, when your assignment suspiciously, suspiciously looks the same as your, as your friends. You know, was it being plagiarized? What's going on? So we don't know who wrote Kings and we don't know who wrote Chronicles. It was probably written by a few people and then someone later on compiled the whole thing together, right? So they like edited it and then put it together at the end. One way to date the book, to see how old it is, is um, it's a method that's used sometimes in scripture, is to see what's the latest recorded event, right? So, because um, obviously the book must have been written after that final event, right? So because of that, we know that Kings was written roughly 561 BC and Chronicles roughly almost 200 years later, right? <clears throat> and then, okay, I showed you guys this is the timeline. Um, So what is the latest event that happens in Kings? So 2 Kings verse 25, 
sorry, chapter 25, I'll read it for you, you don't have to turn there. Uh, verse 27, it says, And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month of the, tw- of the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So this is the last recorded event in Kings. Right? This also lets us know that the original audience of this book is the Israelites who were in exile at the time. Right? So roughly um, in 587, uh, the Babylonians invade Israel and then they capture them and then they take them into Babylon and they're in exile for a long period of time. Right? So while they're in exile, this is when the Israelites get this book. Okay? Are we together? Um, so we know how, who our audience is. It's the Israelites who are captive in Babylon, who are exiles, right? And so the book of Kings answers this question for the Israelites. Why are we here, right? Because you can imagine um, there's people who are like 30, 40 years old. That's all they've known, right? Babylon. And yet they come from a foreign land. Well, how did we get here? Why are we here, right? Um, and so the book of Kings answers that. It, say, it tells them why they're in captivity, why they're in exile. The book of Chronicles covers the same period of time and gives us, as I said, a lot of the same information as kings, but it's very different. A lot of them, if you notice, a lot of material in Chronicles is left out, right? A lot of negative material is left out. So Chronicles is more positive where kings is more negative. And so Chronicles answers a different question, which is, what now? Right? What is God's plan for us? Has God given up on us? Right? It's a lot like the Gospels. So if you read the Gospels, you'll see a lot of repetition as well. Right? Between the books, you'll read something in Mark and then you read Luke and you're like, wait a minute, you know, I read that in this book. So you might think it's a waste of words, you know, like why does God have to repeat this? But what's going on is each Gospel writer has a different agenda. Right? Each Gospel writer has a different focus. So that's why you need four different Gospels, because they reveal four different facets of the Lord Jesus Christ. So an uh, analogy that Mike uses that, that I found really helpful is you're watching a sports, you're watching a soccer game, and, um, or you were at the church tournament, right, and pretend there were cameras, and then you see Percy score a goal, right, and it's a beautiful goal. And cool, on the TV, you just see the goal, right? But then there's different camera angles. And from this angle, you see a different part of that goal, right? You, you realize, oh, okay, but uh, whilst he, was, he actually jumped in the air, for example, or he actually did this and did this. And the different angles reveal different things about the same event, right? In the same way, the four Gospels capture four different facets, four different focuses or, or aspects of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Same life still, same Christ. And so that's what's going on with kings. And it's, it's a wonderful thing about scripture um, because if you read history, you'll find that um, history is always written from a point of view, from a perspective, right? Uh, a Marxist will write history from the point of money, right? In terms of the haves and the have-nots, right? You only get that perspective. Um, activists like feminists or uh, protesters, whatever you want, Black Lives Matter, whoever it is, socialists, they will write history from the point of power, power and oppression, right? Uh, but with scripture, you don't just get those simplistic answers, right? The problem is not just power and oppression. The problem is not just p- 
people have this, people don't have this. Uh, with scripture, it's holistic, right? It gives you a whole range of answers, a whole range of viewing things, because that's the reality of life. It's very complex. Um, and scripture has different perspectives on history. And that's what you see with Kings and Chronicles, right? It deals with it from a point of uh, poverty and its effects, uh, wealth, wealth and economies, uh, power, you know, kings who are oppressive, kings who are good, um, um, even to the point of families, good parenting, bad parenting, and the effects that it has on the whole nation. That's what we saw with David, right? So scripture is holistic. And so that's what's helpful about uh, Kings and Chronicles. Even though it's the same material, it's two different ways of looking at it, right? You can pick up different things. Um, it's the same way that I'm giving this talk right now, and you might take this away from it, or you might take something away from it. Um, that's why the gospel writers can hear Jesus giving a sermon on the mount, and they will each come away with something different, right? They will focus on this because, you know, John is from this particular background, you know, or et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so let's get into the actual book, Kings, right? So if you go to chapter one, as I said, keep in mind the book is very negative. It's just going to show you bad things. And the reason for that is because it's answering the question, why are we in exile? Simple answer, because they rebelled, right? They sinned against God, they rebelled. And so this is showing them that this is what you did wrong, right? So David in chapter one is in his old age and there are problems in his household. One of his sons, Adonijah, is exalting himself. So look at verse five. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggath, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? So remember who else had chariots and horsemen riding in front of him? Absalom, right? And even when you read um, um, a bit further, he says, he was also a very handsome man and he was born next after Absalom. Right, So the text tells us that David did not deal with his son. He doesn't rebuke him. So we saw in Samuel that David is often an absent or a withdrawn dad. Right? He's, never really, he's not a good dad. Um, he never deals with his children. He doesn't deal with difficult issues. He left his son to rape his daughter. And he did nothing about the situation. He failed to confront his son Absalom. Uh, he failed to confront him then. And now he's failing to confront his other son, Adonijah. So Adonijah is preparing to set himself as king when really should be Solomon, right? Solomon is the one who should be king. And so the prophet Nathan and Bathsheba get together to convince David to sort it up, right? To ensure that Solomon is instated as king. So look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 2, David says to Solomon, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me. So what is David saying? He's giving Solomon advice, right? He's saying you want to prosper as a king, you want things to go well with you, then obey the Lord's word, obey the law of Moses. So the Israelites in exile are reading this, and they're probably thinking, okay, if we want things to go well with us, then we should obey the Lord, right? We should obey God. So something must have went wrong. Someone must have disobeyed for us to be in the situation. And so this is especially relevant for the kings, right? The people who are actually in the positions of power. 
It's one thing for people, normal people, if I can put it like that, to sin. It's another when kings do it, right? The sins of the kings is significant. And why is this the case, right? There's a principle of federal headship. I don't know if you guys have heard that before, federal headship. Um, so federal headship is what we see in scripture. The head represents the people, right? And what the head does affects those who are under the head, right? We all know that to be true, even if we might not like it. Um, if we have a good president, it'll be good for the country. If we had a bad president, you're all South Africans. You know what happens, right? Um, we had Adam, who was the head of the whole human race, right? And in him, we all die. That's what First Corinthians says. You weren't there. I wasn't there. And yet, what Adam has done has affected all of us. But if we have Christ, right? And in him, we find ever, everlasting life. So both Adam and Christ are described as being representatives, right? Um, as being the federal heads. So the word federal actually means covenantal, if you look at its root word. So the word federal headship means covenantal headship because we are all in covenant and there has to be a covenant head. Um, <clears throat> and so this is how our sins can be imputed to Christ, right? And how his righteousness can be imputed to us because he is the head of the covenant. He represents us, right? The New Testament tells us that, that Christ is our representative. Um, and so he represents us and even when it comes to marriage, this helps us understand the design of marriage better, right? Marriage is a covenant, right? Um, it's a covenant between a man and a woman, and the man is a covenantal head, federal headship. It doesn't mean that the man is the boss, right? In marriage, we don't, because we don't have two separated individuals, right? The two become one flesh, um, with one of them as the head. So we have an organic union, and... People understanding that from a biblical point of view eliminates, you know, a lot of the misconceptions of marriage as an abusive institution, um, as something that's oppressive. And within marriage, marriage, it should eliminate the blame game, right? It means that a husband can't blame his wife for the state of their marriage because he is the head. He is responsible for the state of the marriage, right? It's not that he's responsible for her sin, for example, but the actual state of the marriage is his responsibility because he's the covenantal head over there. Um, okay, but let's not get into marriage because it's another. We'll get to Song of Solomon. So basically, the king represents the people, and if they do not serve the Lord, there will be consequences for the people, right? And funny enough, you will find that whenever there's a bad king, the people also tend to be bad. You know, whenever there's a good king, the nation tends to be a good nation. Um, in the long run, you know, the people always get the government that they deserve. I believe people always get the government that they deserve and the government that represents them, right? Um, the rulers that, are, that exist, they are appointed by God, but they're appointed by God through the instrumentality of the people, right? Does that make sense? Because, I mean, even if you think about us in this country, you know, when you hear of a person being elected into a position, we all say, ah, oh, now he's going to become corrupt, right? We don't think, yes, it's a good guy. We almost assume that, you know, they're going to be bad because if you think about it, they come from us, you know, and we're all like, ah, oh, if I was in that position, if I had that tender as well, you know, so the people reflect the leadership above him, right? Power, power actually arises from the people, 
And so the rulers reflect the nature of the people. A guilty people, a sinful people will have sinful rulers. And a righteous people will have rulers who are restrained. Okay. And when it comes to the church, whenever there is bad leadership, right, the congregants are also accountable. Um, we can't just say the elders or the pastors are responsible for what happens in the church. It doesn't work like that. Right? Paul writes to congregations and he tells them to remove certain leaders. Right? Um, he tells them to deal with false teachers. So the congregation is also accountable for the state of the church. Okay. Um, even here at Heritage, I think it's, it's in our constitution. I think like if our pastors go rogue for some reason, we have the power to remove them. I think it's like 60% um, is the vote. And then you know, we can get them out just for your information. Um, I'm not saying we should do anything with that information, guys. Just putting it out there. Just putting it out there. <laughs> okay, let's continue. Sorry. Uh, chapter 3. So in chapter 3, Solomon begins to reign. And he's visited by the Lord. And he's visited by the Lord twice. The first time in chapter 3, the second time in chapter 9. The first visit, right, the first visitation, he's kind of at a bad place in life, right? He's at a low point. Um, he seems to be like very nervous and scared of, of assuming uh, power and leadership. You can imagine after coming after David, you know, the great king. It's not an easy thing. Um, and so the Lord asks him what he would like. And he says to the Lord in verse 7, Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. Right? I don't think he's saying that he's like an actual little child. He's just saying he doesn't know anything. He's incompetent. He can't do this. Right? But he loved the Lord. The text tells us that he loved the Lord. And the Lord is asking Solomon, what should I give you? And so Solomon asks for wisdom and discernment. And the Lord rejoices because he didn't ask for money or power or the death of his enemies. Right? But God gives him those things. He gives him money, he gives him power, and he gives him victory over his enemies. Um, do you need to turn that off? Yeah. So God gives him wisdom, and he gives him you know, all those blessings as well. And then the very next story is a demonstration of Solomon's wisdom. Right? You have the two prostitutes who both fall pregnant, um, and then what happens? I think they're both sleeping in a bed, and then the one accidentally rolls over and kills a baby. So now the one baby is dead, the one, other one is alive. The woman takes the babies and swaps them. And in the morning, uh, the other woman's like, This child that's dead is not mine, that's my child. You know, now there's this, there's this dispute. Whose child is it? There's no DNA testing, right? There's no tataku there. So you don't know what's going to happen. Um, so they go to Solomon and they ask Solomon, like they bring the issue before him, you know, who's the real mother? And Solomon uses his wisdom. He says, uh, okay, let's take a sword and let's cut up the baby. Let's divide him in half and then you can have one piece and you can have the other. And then the, the real mother is like, no, 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 no. You know, rather give it to the other woman. It's fine. You know, as long as the child lives. Uh, the, the woman whose child it wasn't, she's like, yeah, let's cut him. Because, you know, uh, I think she didn't want to be the only one to suffer loss. Right. So she was very vindictive like that. Um, and then that's how Solomon is like, okay, this must be the real mother, right? So the people see that, you know, the people wonder at his wisdom and they start to have confidence in him. And so move on to chapter four. So chapter four, verse 20 says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. 
and Judah and Israel lived, safe, lived, safe, sorry, lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Right? So from, from Dan to Sheba basically means from, so Dan is the northern, northernmost tribe, uh, Sheba is the southernmost area, so it's like from bottom to top, the whole land, right? From east to west, there was just joy, there was uh, peace and prosperity, everyone was happy, right? Everyone, every man uh, sat under his own vine and under his own fig tree, right? So back in the day, there was luxury, you hardly ever owned anything, but every, every man has his own tree, you know? So I mean, we think, you know, compared to what we have today, Anyways, so we told that Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. And um, remember where that comes from. God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham. Um, and everything seems good, right? Life seems good. But there are ominous signs that we start to see. There's a bit of things that should cause our eyes to be like, hmm, okay, what's going on here? So look at verse 26. Verse 26 says, Solomon also had 40,000 stores of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. So is there anything wrong with that? What is it? Anyone? Yes, yes. So turn, turn with me there, right? Turn with me to Deuteronomy 17. So Deuteronomy chapter 17, and down in verse 15. Verse 15 says, You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself. Right? So it's, yes, chapter 17, verse 15. So verse 16 says, Only he must not acquire many horses for himself. And how many stalls of horses did Solomon have? 40,000. Right? If you continue reading, Or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. And where did Solomon get the horses from? Since the Lord has said to you, you shall, not, you shall never return that way again. Verse 17. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Right. So already you can see something is not good. And then turning back to 1 Kings chapter 4. Right. So that's like one of the first few signs we see. Okay. Solomon's breaking a few commandments, right? This is not good. He's a king, right? So what he does has consequences for many people. So if we continue in 1 Kings 4 verse 29 says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore. Verse 32, He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who heard of his wisdom. So you can see 
Solomon is basically a genius, right? He's, he's a genius. He's given wisdom more than any man has ever known. So he's a genius. And what does he do with that wisdom? What does he do with that genius? He does science, right? That's what the text tells us over there. That's what he's really doing. He's teaching science and biology, and it's good, right? It's what God's people should be doing. Uh, we should be using our brains, our minds, our faculties to study God's creation and to learn about him through his creation, right? Creation itself testifies about its creator. Um, we speak of general revelation and divine revelation, right? Divine revelation, um, general revelation is how God has revealed himself in the world, right? This is why in Romans, um, every man, even those who have never read a Bible, are without excuse. They know of God because creation, creation tells them of God, right? And then we have divine revelation, which is scripture, which is what we're reading, which is God explicitly putting into words who he is, right? Um, so it's impossible to live on this planet to see the creation and not know God, not recognize him, right? That's why Romans says that the people who deny God, they suppress the knowledge of him. It's not that they don't have it, they have it, they just suppress it. So Solomon expresses his knowledge and his experience of God's creation through writing, through proverbs, and through songs. And then in chapter 5, here we have the preparations for the building of the temple. So why was there a temple? Remember, God saved his people out of Egypt, and they roamed the wilderness for a time. And in their time in the wilderness, they had the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle was a temporary uh, uh, temple. They'd walk with it, and then they'd set it up, and they'd do their sacrifices. Um, and it was a portable church, right? portable temple. And they carried the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant inside of it had the Ten Commandments, right? And Ark of the Covenant signified God's presence with his people. And so David, now that the people were in the land, right, the promised land, this is going to be their home, he wanted to build a permanent temple, right? No more moving around with the tabernacle. Now we're going to have an actual building and all of Israel is going to worship here. And so the temple replaces the tabernacle as a place where God would meet with his people. But David was not allowed to build a temple because he had shed blood, right? And he was a man of war. So Solomon is the one who will build a temple. And so uh, chapter 5 verse 13 says, King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered uh, 30,000 men. So that's also a very concerning statement, right? Um, Solomon begins to take the Israelites and put them into forced labor. It's not slavery, but it's not far from it. And the people have to work, right? They have to work two months, and then they get to take one month off. Not only does he force them to build a temple, but he forces them to build his own house. So it's not just that he's just putting them to work for God's purposes. Now he's building his own luxurious, extravagant house, his own mansion, his own temple. And he's getting the people of God to do it for him. And we know that it's forced labor because when Solomon dies, the people go to the next king in line, his son, and then they ask him, they beg him not to oppress them like Solomon did, right? So Solomon is doing good things, right? He's being a good king, but at the same time, a lot of bad things are going on. We get to chapter 6, and he completes the temple, and it's stunning, right? It's amazing. If you read the description, there's a lot of gold and cedar wood, right? Those are, back in those days, the elite, premium quality materials. Um, it was a huge project. There were 70,000 burden bearers 
There were 80,000 stone cutters. Hundreds of thousands of people are working on the temple, right? He builds a temple, and as you go through the temple description, right? So I'm going to go through a few uh, verses in chapter 6. What, and, and just notice what you hear from this description, right? Verse 18, all was cedar, right? So remember, cedar is a wood. All was cedar, no stone was seen. Verse 23, in the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. So what is cherubim? Angels, right? Angels. Uh, verse 29, around all the walls of the house, he carved, in, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. Verse 32, he covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. Verse 35, on them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. You go to chap uh, chapter 7, uh, we get to the temple furnishings. Verse 8, likewise he made pomegranates. Verse 9, now the capitals that weren't on the top pillars in the vestibules were of lily work. And then all the way in verse 29, and on the panels that were set in the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim, right? Lions, oxen, and angels. So basically, it's like going through a botanical garden, right? A botanical garden and a zoo. Imagine coming to church and all you see is pictures of animals and angels and plants, right? Where else do you see all these things together? Let's go back in time. Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden, right? I like, I like how you think, though. Um, so remember, when we started in Genesis, we discussed the theme of the temple, right? We said that Eden was a temple because it's where God met with man, right? And after Eden, we had the temporary temple, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, which is where God met with his people. And now we have the temple, right? It's fully established. It's permanent. And the instruction is to make it look like the garden, right? So people should go in there and be reminded of paradise, be reminded of Eden, be reminded of fellowship with God before the fall. But it also reminds us that we not, it's not quite paradise anymore. Um, because when you go into the temple, so there's a temple and there's kind of like divisions, there's the inner sanctuary, and then there's the holiest of holies, right? So I'm, I don't know if you've read this description before, there's the holiest of holies, and the holiest of holies was basically where the presence of God was. And no man was allowed to go in there except the priest. And he was only allowed to go in there once a year, right? And make sacrifices. And so there's a huge curtain uh, that separates the people of God from the holies of holies, right? And embroidered on that curtain is a cherubim with a flaming sword. What was placed outside of the Garden of Eden? 100%, right? So the curtain tells us that things are not quite right yet because that is where the holiest of holies is where the presence of God is, but man is separated from it, right? Cannot get into, does not have full access to um, the presence of God. And, and within the temple, there's also the inner sanctuary. And when you read the description of it, it's described as being 20 cubits long, 20 cubits high, and 20 cubits wide, right? And then it's overlaid with gold. And gold in scripture is the purest of all the elements, so this room was a perfect cube, and it's described as being a perfect cube, uh, which is similar to a description we read in which other book? What did you say? Revelation, 100%, right? Um, the description of the city, right, described in Revelation is a perfect cube, right? So the inner sanctuary 
is where the holiest of holies is. It's where God's presence is. So in Revelation, because we'll all be in the city, basically the image you're supposed to get is everywhere is filled with the presence of God, right? It's the fullness of the presence of God. Um, but we'll explore that, that, that image when we get to Revelation. Right? We will get there, guys. I know it seems far, but we will get there. Um, right now, right, the Israelites go in and they see it as, right now, even us, we see it as this room, right? Just a room. But in the new heavens and a new earth, it will encompass everything, basically. And we'll be able to enjoy God's presence and fellowship perfectly, right? That's what's consummately, uh, uh, consummately realized in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what Solomon's temple ultimately points to, right? And when Christ comes and he dies, what happens to the curtain? It's torn in two, right? I made his way. A way is made for us to be, to, uh, be in the presence of God. Um, to enjoy the fullness of his presence. Um, and what else does the temple imagery lead us to in the New Testament? Besides Jesus Christ, think of us. The church, right? Leads to the church, but we'll unpack that more when we look at Chronicles. So it took seven years to build a temple. Um, it was consecrated in the seventh month. And the feast, when it was consecrated, is the Feast of Booths, which was a seven-day festival. So we have the repetition of seven, which is a picture of God's creative work. Right? The temple is also a symbol of God's creation. Sadly, in the middle of this, Solomon spends 13 years building his own house, right? still using the labor. And he continues yeah, using the forced labor, and naturally the people resent him for it. Then we get to... Chapter 8. Chapter 8, we have Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple. So this is the inauguration of the temple. And he prays, if you go all the way down to verse 33, he prays, When your people, Israel, are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them again to the, to the land that you gave to their fathers. Verse 35. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them. Uh, verse 37. If there's famine in the land, if there's pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man, or by all your people, Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hand toward this house. So what, what Solomon is basically praying there and what is communicating to the people is whenever bad things happen, it means that the people are not obeying God. Right? That's what you, you'll take away from that prayer, is that uh, Israel, obey your Lord, otherwise these things will happen. And he's also pleading to God, please you know, have mercy on them when this happens. Then we get to chapter 9. Here we find the Lord's second visitation. Yes, Dumi. Sorry, I just had a quick question. Sure. Um, we're back in chapter 7. So, um, could it also just be a sign um, of Solomon's um, slight downfall? And that, I don't know if I'm reading it correctly, but um, in verse 7 it said, He made the hall of throne where he was to judge, the hell of judgment, and it was paneled with cedar from floor to floor. Um, could it be that he was also, he, he modeled his house after the temple so that he was a little mini-god among the people. I don't know if I'm reading that correctly. The way it's, it's written, it almost seems like 
the design of his house was sort of similar to how mm. the the temple was built. Yeah, so um, I wouldn't think he's like, you know, trying to make his own temple. I just think he's taking from the materials that were already there. So remember, for the first temple, David had brought all the material together. He like put everything there. So it's almost like, you know, like if you go outside a house and all the bricks and all the cement and that is there. So to me, it seems more like Solomon is just taking from there and then he's furnishing his own house. Instead yeah, no, of, that's what I get. I'm just okay. saying, like, the design of it, is it like, oh. yeah, so do they, it, I don't know if I'm being clear, like I said, I just feel like yeah. it seems almost that way he was judging would be like the holy of holy places, mm. but in his house. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, I yeah, I hear that. Uh, and they are like ominous signs, like even, I think, is it here in Chronicles, where it describes his throne, because he has a throne in his own house, as basically 666, you know, it's just leaving that, because it's like he has six this and then six this and then six this, and it's all kind of ominous signs. So I think there's a lot of merit to that. Yeah. Um, any other questions? Good. Okay. Um, so in chapter 9, the Lord visits Solomon for a second time. And at this point, everything's going well in Solomon's life, right? This is probably his peak. Um, he's at a high point. He's the great king. He has tremendous wealth and wisdom. Sorry, people are coming from all over the world just to meet him, right? Um, and the Lord visits him. And it's really God's grace because God has come to warn him. So verse 4, he says, And as for you, if you will walk before me as David, your father, walked with integrity of heart, in uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes, etc., etc., verse 6. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples." So uh, what is house here? House here, it's the temple, right? Verse 8, and this house will become a heap of ruins. So the temple will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss and they will say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold of other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. So we see what the Lord says to Solomon, right? Obey me and it will go well. If you don't obey me, this temple will become a heap of ruins and you will be cut off from the land, right? Israel will go into exile. Chapter 10. Chapter 10, we have the Queen of Sheba who comes to see Solomon and she's blown away by him, right? She's just, wow, right? She says, I've never, like what I've heard, what I've heard about you is not even half of the story, right? He's that amazing. And any question that she had, he could give an answer for. We're not sure, we're not 100% sure where Sheba is. Uh, we know it's somewhere in Africa, right? And uh, people estimate that it's close to Ethiopia. Um, and the queen goes back to her land and she talks about the Lord in a way that suggests that she's become a believer, right? So there's this theory, just stressing that it's a theory. It's a theory that she took the scriptures back with her to the land of Sheba. Right? Because remember, even in the New Testament, we have the Ethiopian eunuch. Right? So people kind of make that connection, which I think is 
uh, kind of makes sense. So it's, it, it's most likely then that Africa had the Bible before Europe, right? And remember, there were Ethiopian Jews, right? Um, so that's just for you in case someone says Christianity is a white man's religion. Just tell them we had the Bible first, you know, something you can use, just equipping you here, guys. Um, and so Solomon, when you look at him, he's quite an enigmatic character. On the one hand, he's a type and shadow of Christ. But on the other hand, he's a type of antichrist, right, in the way that he behaves. Um, verse 14 of chapter 10 says, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, right? It's ominous. Um, and I already mentioned about the throne, you know. Um, it's it's uh, the description we have there. It says it's got six steps and six lines on each side of the throne. Uh, Chronicles will say it's six line heads, six steps, and six heads, right? So I think it's more obvious in Chronicles than when you read it in Kings. Now remember, uh, like Lungelo pointed out, what were kings instructed not to do? Three things that they were instructed not to do. Get lots of personal wealth, right? He had silver and gold. Uh, horses, he had plenty. Wives, you all know. You all know the numbers, the statistics, right? 700 wives, 300 concubines. Um, the next chapter, chapter 11, tells us about these wives that he had. So verse 1, now Solomon, now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, sorry, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edonite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Remember in chapter 3, what does it say? Who did he love in chapter 3? It says he loved the Lord. Right now we're being told that it's these women that he loves. So verse 3, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. So we see Solomon going after the gods of the women that he's married. And his wives turned away his heart. Um, and... He even, he even starts to, uh, so verse 6 says, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And he even then starts to build places of worship for these, for these idols and false gods. Verse 9, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had, and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods but he did not keep what the Lord commanded, right? So it's quite significant, stressing, like the Lord came to you twice and warned you about this thing, and yet you're doing it, right? And it's crazy because he, he breaks God's commands in every single way, right? And severely, you know, he didn't just marry three women from three different tribes, 700, which is a crazy number. Application for us, um, Solomon had wealth, right? He had lots of money, uh, he had lots of gold, um, which is not a bad thing, right? We should go out and try to make as much as we can, but uh, continually we are exhorted to use what we have for the Lord's kingdom, right? Uh, don't just hoard wealth. That's what Solomon did, right? He got wealth just so he can have it. He hoarded wealth. Didn't use it for the kingdom. Horses, right? Uh, I don't know if it was Percy or Lungelu mentioned it. I think it was Percy that, you know, he tried to, he started relying on these things. That was his security, right? Um, 
because why does he need so many horses? He fears the other nations. He fears attacks and all that stuff when his trust and hope should be in the Lord. Same with us. Uh, obviously, we live in the, in the country that we do, in the city that we do. And not saying, you know, like just leave your door open and trust the Lord. Not saying that. But, um, you know, don't live paranoid. Don't live as if, you know, um, don't let anxiety get the best of you. At the end of the day, let your hope and trust be in the Lord. All right? The Lord will keep us. And then the wives, right? Pleasure and fulfillment, um, lust. But he was probably trying to find somebody who would satisfy him in every way, right? Emotionally, uh, sexually, um, uh, in, you know, someone who he could find everything in. But when it comes to fulfillment, Scripture teaches us that only one person can do that, right? And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so marriage is a beautiful gift from God and it's beautiful only when you love the person and see them the way that you should, right? As soon as you make them responsible for your joy and for your fulfillment, that's when things go wrong in the relationship. And that's when uh, you place a burden on them to be God, right? And um, you also ruin things for yourself because you set yourself up for disappointment and you could actually like ruin the other person. You know, you could hurt the other person in, such, in, in that way. So don't try to make your partner ultimate, you know, don't give them the responsibility to fulfill you, right? Um, and just a note, you know, it's, it's not that you shouldn't marry someone from a different ethnicity, tribe, race, whatever. It's um, marrying the Ammonites, the Moabites wasn't bad. It's that they followed other gods, right? Remember Ruth was a Moabite, she was a Moabite, right? And she's a woman of the faith. She's, you know, um, she's the great-grandmother of David, but that's because she followed the Lord, right? So when it comes to marriage, only do it in the Lord, right? It's a grace from God, actually, to do that. Um, so just like how the Lord raises up adversaries, enemies for Saul, he does the same thing for Solomon. Since Saul had disobeyed God, um, uh, God raised up David to rule. In the same way, God chooses a man named Jeroboam to take over from Solomon instead of his own son, Rehoboam. Right? So don't get those two names confused. Um, sadly, Solomon responds like Saul. Right? Instead of saying, okay, Lord, I submit. This is what you've chosen. He tries to kill the adversaries. And so um, a prophet named Ahijah tells Jeroboam that he will be king, but only of ten tribes. And this is important because this is where we will see the divide uh, between Israel and Judah, right? So um, I, I used to get confused about this all the time. But basically, the kingdom is split into north and south. The northern kingdom is known as Israel, right? Northern kingdom is known as Israel, and there's 10 tribes in it. And then the southern kingdom is known as Judah. And there's only two tribes in it, which is Judah and Benjamin. And this is all a consequence of Solomon's reign. So verse 12 Sorry, chapter 12. When Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam says, okay, I'm going to reign now. The people go to Rehoboam and they ask him not to oppress him like their father did. Right? So remember, the people had resented Solomon because of the forced labor. So the people go to Rehoboam, his son, and they're like, why? You know, like, please don't oppress us. Yes, you have a question. Sort of, um, journals about all the things that 
So are you looking for a specific like date or so I think I think it's it's when his rebellion is greatest. So probably um it's hard to see it like in a, in a scripture, but I think when his apostasy is at its worst, because that's what he was. Well, it's not that he was an unbeliever because he hadn't, he saved, right? But at, at the height of his rebellion, that's when I think it was written. So like probably at the thousandth wife, you know, when they signed, that's maybe, um, but somewhere there, you know. Um, so maybe around like the ninth chapter, that period going on. So yeah. When the Lord is chastising him and saying, this is what you have done, you have not listened, and da 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 I think probably then. So, yeah. Okay, just going to quickly summarize the rest of Kings. <coughs> so, there's uh, Rehoboam, right? Solomon's son. And the people go to him and they ask him not to oppress them like his father did. And, and, he, and they ask him to make their lives better. He tells the people, give me three days to consult. So he goes to the elders, the older wise men in Israel, and he asks them about it. And the elders tell him that if he's gracious with the people, he will win them over, right? The people will love him and they will want to serve him. But then he goes to consult with his peers, his age mates, and they tell him, no, you must be harder than your father ever was, right? And they must go away without anything. They mustn't get away with anything. They're just trying to get at you. You know, they're being sneaky. They're being cheeky. Um, and his friends tell him to say, my little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. Right, so if you thought my father's thigh was heavy, my my little finger's heavier than that, and of course he listens to his friends instead of the older wise men, right? And he oppresses the people even harder, and so the ten tribes hear this response from Rehoboam, and they're like, no ways, right? And then they rebel against Rehoboam. Rehoboam sends a messenger to them, but all of Israel stone that messenger to death, and then Rehoboam gets scared for his life, and then he flees to Jerusalem. Uh, and then the ten tribes of Israel hear that Jeroboam has returned and they set him as their king, right? So he's now he's king of the south, um, where there's the two tribes. And so, um, no, no, sorry, that's Rehoboam, these names, that's Rehoboam. Jeroboam becomes king of the north, Rehoboam becomes king of the south, right? I'll send diagrams to make this easier to understand. Um, And so, okay, we, we press for time. We'll continue this in the second session. Let's just take a 10-minute break there. And then we'll finish this off and get to Chronicles. <laughs>